0: And now, Lord Jesus, we have the privilege of opening the Scriptures, prophetic, authoritative, a word from the Father to tell us about you. Help us to meet with you, to hear you. We invite you and and ask you by your own goodness to reshape our thinking, to break, Lord, the chains of old, bad, sinful habits that keep us from you and keep us from your best. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning. How many of you have ever been told at a different point in your life that you were gifted? In a non-sarcastic way? One of the amazing things about the United States is that in a lot of areas of life, I grew up outside of the United States, so I have a point of reference. In a lot of different areas of life, we have built a a society and particularly an education that meets people where they are, recognizing differing abilities, differing limitations, and we can educate and prepare people for life in keeping with who they are, not what we would want them to be, don't treat everybody alike. some dear friends of ours had a son who was like his mom and dad. He was a pretty sharp kid. And here in, here in our school district, there's this program called GATE. I believe it stands for Gifted and Talented. It's a, it's a, little, it's a program for, for young kids who need a little bit more in their education to be challenged. Well, this particular boy who will remain nameless out of respect for him and his family, he had the goods. And the teachers are saying so, but he wasn't quite meeting the academic standard inside the school. And it was a big surprise to everybody until they discovered that he had done the math, had figured out the weight of different assignments, and he had averaged everything out, and he was very carefully scoring in third grade... He was deliberately tanking and scoring just below the threshold to stay in his regular classroom because he didn't want to go to the gate program because he understood even as a third grader, that's a lot of extra work and I don't want to be, I don't want to put up with that. If you're a third grader and you're doing the math and deliberately going into the tank to avoid extra work, you actually are gifted in my opinion. (laughs) And his mother said, when I texted her to confirm all this, she said, yeah, we we should have listened way back then. He was way ahead of us. We shouldn't have forced him to go into that program. But in our culture, there's such an interest in discovering our gifts that we're even at this point, in some cases, making up categories so that everybody is gifted, so that everybody wins, as contradictory as that seems. That's perhaps one of the cultural shapes that is actually going to fight against your understanding as i try to teach you ephesians 4 please open your bibles there the book of ephesians chapter 4 and as you're looking for it let me tell you what you're reading you're reading the personal letter from a from the apostle paul written from prison probably about the year 60 ad paul was probably imprisoned in rome he, In his writing to a church, he knew well. He had preached the gospel in the ancient and very pagan, very wicked city of Ephesus. People had come to faith in Jesus there. And if you've come to a Christian church for the first time or the first time in a long time and you're here for any reason, here's the heart of every message. We want you to trust Jesus as your Savior. He is the only one who can save you your sins, your guilt, your shame, your shortcomings, which you're keenly aware of because you have a conscience, and you've felt guilty and ashamed at various points through your whole life, all of that speaks against you and tells you the truth. You are not perfect. You are not on God's level. You cannot meet His standard, and that's why He sent His Son Jesus to live in your place, die on a cross, and as promised, By himself personally and in Scripture centuries before he was born, he took his own life back in the resurrection. We celebrate his coming at Christmas. We celebrate his death and resurrection at Easter. We celebrate it every Sunday. But we especially focus and remember that occasion on Easter. And that is because the good news of the Bible that you've just opened is that Jesus came to save sinners like me and sinners like you, and he is your only hope in this life. In this life, you have the certainty of death and the possibility of eternal life if you'll trust Jesus. And this morning, I am primarily speaking to Christians, because that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 4. But if you're not absolutely certain of your relationship with Jesus, I'm just telling you on the front side, before we go into this actual passage, that this is your only way. And frankly, if I'm going to talk about what Jesus did for Christians from the moment he saved them, if you're not certain of your relationship with him, this sermon does not actually yet apply to you. You need to begin at the beginning. Turning away from yourself, religion, tradition, your own self-improvement, whatever you've been trying to do, whatever your conscience has been pushing you to do, it's not enough until you turn to Jesus. And if you do, here's what's going to happen. I won't see it, but you and God will know it. God will tug on your heart. He will show you the truth of what you're hearing, not because I'm saying it, but because He said it, and it's true. He'll impress it upon you and put you at a point of humility where you'll decide whether to continue trusting yourself or start trusting Jesus. And my sincere prayer is before this service is over, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you would humble yourself before Him, call out to Him in prayer because He's actually listening, and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, please save me. I did it years ago, He did it for me. I've never been perfect, not a moment in my life, but Jesus always is, and He is my Savior, and He can be yours if only you will trust Him. Clear so far? That is the message, in his own words, with the authority of an apostle that Paul preached in Ephesus. And now he's in prison, far from them, reminding them of the gospel and what they were given, what they were gifted in Christ. Look with me, please, in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to go as quickly as I can, but the first half of this chapter has some deep things in it. And then practically, we're going to look at verses 12 to 16, which are printed there on your handout. But the background, the platform for what we're looking at in verse 12 is built and is very important in these first few verses. Here's Paul writing to this church he knew and loved. This assembly of Christians, this is likely being read aloud to them in one of their Sunday gatherings, and here's what he told them. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... And there's Paul referring to the fact that he's in prison. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And now Paul's going to tell them about what has brought them together, as different as they are Here is what makes them one. Here's what gives them unity. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Everybody tracking so far? He's telling them that as different as they are, they are united in Christ. They have God as their father. They share a common trust in Jesus. They have expressed that trust, as Nikos and Brianna did, by being baptized. This is what brings them together. And so it is with our church 2,000 years later. There are many different languages spoken in this church. There are all kinds of different levels of education, education. All kinds of different jobs, all kinds of abilities and disabilities. We're a very diverse group of people. What we have in common is greater than all of that. What we have in common is Christ. And verse 7 says, for the first time, Paul refers to something that makes them different from one another. Verses 1 to 6 is all of their unity. Then Paul begins to speak of their diversity in that unity. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, Jesus gave everyone differing gifts according to what he wanted to do. He has the ability to give anyone anything, and he gave different gifts to each one of us a gift was given according, that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And here's where it gets a little deep, because now Paul, who is writing the New Testament, in other words, God is speaking afresh through this apostle, telling Christians, here's how to follow Jesus. Paul's going to reach back into his Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, to connect an old psalm to what Jesus did when he came to earth. Verse 8, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Everybody understand the connection? That silence says no. And that's fine. Let me tell you what's going on here. Paul is quoting a psalm written centuries earlier, and it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. The reason that doesn't make immediate sense to you is because you don't live in the ancient world. Paul is remembering the ascension of Jesus because after Jesus took his life back as promised from the grave, he publicly, visibly ascended in the presence of his disciples. That was the final miraculous, you've got to be kidding me, only God can do this proof that he was who he claimed to be. You can read about it in the book of Acts. If you've read it, you remember they stood there. So would you. You would not have been prepared to see that. It's a miracle. It's God showing up and showing off to give historical witness to everyday people that he is acting in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, on earth. And the historical claim of Christianity is that it stands on the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection did not happen, this has all been a farce. I've wasted my life. You you are wasting yours. We should sell it, give the money to anybody else that doesn't believe such a lie, and get on with our lives. But the historical proof of the resurrection was so compelling that the people who saw the resurrection and some of them the ascension of Jesus would rather be killed than take the story back. They were given opportunities, often under torture, to say, say it isn't true and we'll let you go. And they would say, men and women, no, you'll have to kill me instead. I can't stop believing and telling you what I saw. And that's what's happening here. And that's what Paul was referring to in this passage when it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That doesn't make immediate sense to you because it's an ancient image. The city is threatened, the king goes to war, a leader goes to war, defeats the people that would have destroyed his city, and comes back in triumphal procession at the head of his army with a long train of enemy soldiers now in chains. The people who wanted to kill us are now our captives. And Paul is seizing on that ancient image to say, this is what Jesus has done with death. Let's be really practical. Any of you looking forward to dying? Yeah, a very, very quiet crowd here this morning, folks. You resemble an oil painting more than a congregation this morning. <laughs> Anybody looking forward to dying? I'm not. I'm trying to avoid it. Death is the final enemy. It grips us in fear. Paul uses an image from the ancient world to say Jesus is in charge of that. He destroyed death. He's bringing it back in chains. Everything that opposed life is under Jesus' command. And as a victorious leader, when he gets back to his own people, not only does he display for them their enemies now conquered, he also gives them gifts. And that city would have celebrated because now they're richer than they've ever been because their enemies have been defeated, their loot, their goods have been plundered, and we all celebrate. That's the imagery. That's why that's a difficult passage of Scripture. But here is the point. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? In other words, Jesus was born among us, died on a cross, was actually buried in a tomb. He came from heaven and came to the lowest parts of the earth, but, verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In other words, Jesus was seemingly defeated, but he was actually victorious. He actually conquered the final most fearsome enemy. He gave gifts to people and Paul is saying all that before getting very practical as I desire to do in the life of a local church by telling you in verse 7 grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift and what that means is this Christian Christ's victory over death means that Christians are gifted in other words Jesus defeated death And displayed his victory over every enemy so that he could in turn give you a gift. And verse 7 says, our gifts are different, but we have all been given a gift by Christ. That's the deepest, heaviest part of the sermon. Everybody clear so far? And you will say, you don't know me. I'm kind of a Christian clod. Let me be really practical when I make the appeal and the challenge that Paul follows this with, most Christians, having been told that Jesus not only defeated death for them, but along with their eternal life, gave them gifts for the good of other people and for the glory of God, they'll believe that they can be saved, but they will not believe that they have been gifted to serve. And that's the weirdest, wildest contradiction. That Jesus can beat death for me, but he cannot empower me to make a difference in the life of someone else? I mean, honestly, which is harder? To beat death or to give you some talent, some gift from him? Death is the final enemy. That's why Paul goes into it for all of these verses and says in verse 7 that our gifts differ, but each one of us has received one. And he says in verse, 12, in verse 11, he begins to explain those gifts in the local church. It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Those are the first of Christ's gifts. Grace was given to each one of us, Ephesians 4, 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And in verse 11, he begins to get specific. In a local church like the Ephesians had, there are some, like Paul, who have come to them as apostles. There are others, Paul says, who are prophets. And these were specially used people, the Word of God not having been completed, who told the local church, this is what God wants, this is how God is guiding us. There were, and there still are, evangelists. These are people who tell others about Jesus, who are specially gifted and empowered to carry the good news of Jesus to other people so that people will be saved and trust Him. And within the local church, there will always be shepherds and teachers. Some of your translations will say the pastor teachers, they'll put a dash there. It may be that these are two functions referring to the same person who will not only guide God's people but also teach them. But we'll call that group of people, for lack of a better term, I'll just call those church leaders, okay? Not all of those offices are functional. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the life of Christ, as Paul is. There are some people in the contemporary world who are self-styled and self-appointed apostles. Be very careful with them. They tend to be hucksters. And they tend to say things that are not found in Scripture, and they tend to give themselves away by wanting to lord it over people rather than serve people and teach things to their own taste and to their own liking and to their own convenience rather than the simple truth of the Bible. But these leaders, these evangelists, these pastor teachers, all of these people that Jesus gave to the church, they have a specific purpose, and here's... Verse 12 is the most important probably. This is the hinge of understanding makes this whole passage work. Those church leaders Paul says were given by Christ to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now again, this is why Bible teaching has to go a little bit slow sometimes. Who are the saints? What's that? How dare you? <laughs> See, if you grew up Catholic, I didn't, but I was raised in a Catholic country. Many of, most, almost all of my good friends growing up, some remain dear friends to this day. You hear the word saint and you associate it with an image somewhere in a church someone with a halo, a holy look, long suffering and patient in the artist's imagination. A saint simply means one who has been set apart. Paul uses it to refer to ordinary Christians like the Ephesians all the time. There are leaders in the church, but their specific purpose in verse 12 is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, church leaders are gifted to equip people to serve, and God's people, another word for the saints, God's people are gifted to serve so that the body grows. In other words, the ministry, the work of ministry, in other words, the work of service to other people belongs not only to the church leaders, but to everybody who Jesus saved. I call this the hinge of understanding in the passage because the American church, in my opinion and in my experience, and again, I've got a foreign frame of reference, has created a system that defies and denies what the Lord is saying here. And that is this. There are a few people who are called and gifted by God to serve the church. The rest of you go to church and let them serve you. You give encourage them and do a few things to keep the church going and let them use their gifts. You enjoy and support those gifts and we'll all see each other in heaven someday. And all that system does is deny the body of Christ the gifts and the service of most of the members of the body of Christ. Because verse 12 says that these church leaders have been given Verse 11, he gave the apostles, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. If you want a word picture, pastors and teachers like me, at our best, when we're obeying Jesus, we're player coaches. In other words, we're in the game, we're doing our part, and while we play, while we make our effort, we're coaching everybody else on the team so that they can make their unique contribution. Now think about it for a second. In a church like ours of some 700 people on an average weekend, if three or four pastors serve the needs of 700, what would you expect those pastors to be like? Tired. Tired. Stressed. How gifted, strong, healthy would you expect that church to be? It'll shrink down to the size of the gifts and the abilities of those few. Does that make sense? All kinds of things would never happen because those poor schlubs can't do it all. They weren't gifted. They weren't called. They don't have the physical human availability to do all of those things. But if every one of God's people, whether that is a saint who happens to be a pastor or a saint who happens to be an ordinary person who never spent a day in seminary, if they believe the radical truth that Jesus gave to each of them, gifts according to the measure of His power, of His grace, and that they each have something to give. And those 700 people, now granted a lot of those are children, many of those are people who just got saved in the last few weeks, they haven't yet discovered all of that, but eventually, let's, Imagine a scenario in which a church where 700 people are coming, 500 people have found their gift, and day by day, week by week, are expressing it in obedience and in love to Jesus. They're serving other people. What would that church be like? Extraordinary. Because it would have ministries and abilities and strengths and compassions and virtues that express everything that jesus has given to that individual church that's the church we should become that's the church we're on our way to becoming many years ago when i came here this church is 50 some years old it used to be called central baptist and the joke on our pastoral team when i arrived was this we got a decentralized central because everything ran through the office and somebody who was on the payroll had to do just about everything, enlisting the help of a few hardy volunteers. So when we call you volunteers, we're actually doing you a disservice. You know what you actually are? Ministers. You are a saint. You are part of God's people. Our role is to equip you to find your gift and give it to other people with, the, verse goes on, the chapter goes on to say, and I'll wrap up, with extraordinary, beautiful results. The result will be that we all grow to maturity in Christ. Look back up in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, if the leaders do their part and equip all of God's people to serve, and God's people actually do their acts of service, their own ministry, the result will be the entire body will be built up. And we'll all grow up together. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a dense sentence. Let me tell you what it means. What Jesus wants to do in his church is grow each and every person who is in it into the likeness of his Son. If you're a Christian, God's purpose, design, goal will be to make you like His Son, Jesus Christ. The measure is not some other gifted Christian. The measure, it says, is the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, Paul says, there are winds and waves of false teaching raging all around you. You'll know you're mature in Christ when you can navigate them, when you can tell the difference and you can reject those lies. He says, rather, in other words, rather than being tossed around by every kind of false teaching that people come up with, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Notice that Paul says, we. That's a really humble pronoun because Paul says, you're growing and I'm growing too, Paul says in Philippians, I'm not there yet. I'm forgetting what is behind me, and I am stretching forward for what lies ahead. Paul is still growing. He says in Philippians that he learned to be content. Now, that's not hard to figure out. If you learn something, what does that imply? There was a time you didn't know it. In other words, there was a time when the Apostle Paul said, this isn't right. I'm not happy about this. I can't tolerate this. And he learned to be content. In other words, Paul is One more Christian who is growing into the fullness of Jesus. And when we all do it together, Paul says, we speak the truth in love and we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Two things about this. Paul says that every part of the body matters. This has really been clearly uh, seen in my little brain for the last week because somehow along the way I hurt my right foot and my first few steps in the morning look like this. If our house ever catches on fire in the middle of the night, I'm going to die because the first few steps... Super slow. And my entire body is now focused on the one part of it that's hurt. Paul says the ideal for the church is Jesus as its head and everybody in it gifted. A few of them are leaders, people who have been publicly recognized among God's people as people that are sent and gifted by God to teach and equip everybody else. And their job, again, is not to do everything. But to equip all of God's people to do their works of service, their ministry, do what God has called them to do with the result that every part of the body is joined together under Jesus the head and the whole body is growing and building itself up in love. And if I can brag on you for just a second, what I am most grateful about in our church family over the last several years is how you have grown in love. This is far from a perfect church, but it is a loving church. And if that has not been your experience, I am profoundly sorry and ask you to give us another chance because the heart of this body is to love Jesus and to love other people. We don't distinguish among people. We don't play favorites. Our genuine desire and our growing maturity shows that we genuinely, as a body, not every one of us, not every day, You've heard me say it before, this is a church like a, I saw a billboard in Stanton, Texas said, welcome to Stanton, home of 400 friendly people and a few old sore heads. <laughs> there are a few sore heads among us, sometimes it's me. But what God has been doing, Jesus has been doing in his body here is growing us in love so that we speak the truth but not with harshness, not with tyranny not with contempt. We speak the truth in love, and the body is growing and building itself up and growing itself out, and it's all happening in love. And that is what Jesus wants here. We all grow to maturity in Christ, and here's what that maturity looks like. It looks like this. Gifts come from Jesus, which result in service for Jesus, and we all grow to be like Jesus. This is the intention. We are growing into the maturity of Christ, which looks like the strength of Jesus, the discernment to tell the difference between deceit and between the truth and choose the truth, and all of that results, the signature, the final expression and proof that it really is Christian, that it deserves the name of Jesus, is love, because strength without love is dangerous. And discernment, in other words, the difference between, to be able to tell the difference between falsehood and truth without love is also dangerous. I grew up in Mexico, as I've told you too many times, and my experience, particularly in high school and college, was noticed that as that country grew and became an economic power, they were more and more often sending their best leaders to Ivy League universities in the United States. And they were coming back with world-class educations, in other words, with extraordinary discernment and training but too many of those high-ranking leaders use their gifts use their strength use their discernment not to serve the people of the nation but to enrich themselves to lord it over the people and the heart of this church and the heart of this pastor that's speaking to you is to do my part that we leaders would do our part And if you're already in Christ to help you discover your gifts so that you would grow to be strong like Jesus, that you would have the discernment of Jesus, and most of all, that you would prove that you have his strength and discernment and that it comes from him so that you would have the love of Jesus and for Jesus. This is the path we're on. But we will be weakened. We will be diminished. We will never be what Jesus wants us to be as long as some members of the body are not participating and holding themselves back. You are gifted by Christ to serve. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, that's not yet true. Your greatest need is to turn to Jesus and ask him this morning to forgive you your sins. But if you are saved by Jesus, you've already been gifted. Why don't more people recognize it? Can I show you? and I'll be through. Look back at Ephesians chapter 4. verse, Verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In verse 2, you'll see that the first thing Paul wants from the Ephesians so that they will walk this out, so that this great truth that he's about to tell them that they've all been gifted by Christ to serve one another and serve people outside the body so that they will be saved and come to Jesus and join the body so that the body grows and continues to more and more grow to be like Jesus. The first thing Paul says to them in verse 2 is what? With all humility. Let me just give you a little pastoral shop talk now. The reason more Christians don't serve is because they are afraid and they are ashamed. And that fear and that shame is rooted in their pride. They sell Jesus short by saying, I can't. And you tell the Lord who was born of a virgin placed in a manger humiliated by sinful and wicked men and put on a cross to die for your sins and as he promised as the scripture said before he arrived on earth he took his life back in the power of the resurrection and visibly ascended to prove it was all true you'll tell that Savior I can't I got nothing to give man respectfully lovingly that's your pride That's your fear that you don't have anything to give. How about instead if you trust Jesus and you say, I don't know what I could possibly give, but I believe Jesus has saved me, and therefore he must have gifted me. What if you humbly start discovering it? What if you humbly say, I don't think this is much, but in love for Jesus and love for you, I'll offer it to you, and wait till you see what difference that makes. Listen, Paul humbly says, We are growing. Let me add my own testimony. I'm a light year away from Paul in every respect as a Christian. But you have taught me so much. So many of you have taught me self control because it's not my strength. It should be, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. But it's a struggle. But I have seen self-control from ordinary Christians who were anonymous to almost everybody. I've seen you bear up under persecution, under genuine stress, under genuine hardship, and keep control of yourself and keep trusting the Lord. And I, your pastor, have stood beside you with my mouth open going, wow, that's the Lord. Some of you have taught me compassion for others for whom I had little compassion And you have taught me to love other people that are nothing like me. I thought I had that coming from Mexico. You have taught me a great deal about it. See, I did you a disservice. This is confession. When I came from Mexico with my family, I thought to myself, I can only speak to myself because my wife's a better Christian than I am. And yes, by the way, I do have a wife. You'd never or seldom see her in here because she's always teaching the children, okay? I am married, see? There's the ring. She's doing her gifts. She's expressing her gifts. Those gifts all involve people that are four and five years old. If you had me teaching your four and five-year-old, you would soon leave this church <laughs> because your child would hate it, and you would say, we can't put up with that anymore, and we've got to find someone who's good with four and five-year-olds. When I came to this church, here's the confession. We were in Mexico. We tried very hard to go to Cuba, and God slammed that door. And I sadly said to myself, even as I agreed to be a pastor here I will never meet the stature of Christians I met in Latin America. And that was wrong. And that was sinful. And that was discriminatory. And that was stupid. Because the same Jesus that saves Cubans also saves Americans. And it's the same gospel. And it's the same faith. And it's the same power. And it's the same gifts. So, some of you are selling not yourself short, you're selling Jesus short because you think in pride, I'm afraid to explore my gifts. I don't think I have them. I don't think they matter. They do. So, my simple invitation to you is if you don't know what your gifts and your place of service is, that you would take the card that's in your bulletin, give us some contact information, and just write these two words on it I'm in. And we will, and it'll be messy and it'll take some time, but we will come alongside you and given enough time, we will help you discover what Jesus gifted you to do. And if enough people join that journey, this body of Christ will look like Jesus and bring people to Jesus and do things that are only... able to be explained because Jesus is working. That's my invitation to you because your gifts were not given to you for you. Your gifts were given to you for the sake of other people. Here's the point of the sermon. We are all called to discover and use the gifts Christ gave us to serve other people so that we may all become like him. In other words, your gifts, Christian, are meant for the good of others so that we may all grow to be like Jesus. My pastor, my predecessor here, used to say it like this What would this church be like if everybody had your attitude? See, not everybody has your gifts, but this church has grown stronger, more loving, more Christ like, as some of you have understood that Jesus gifted you and started giving those gifts back to Christ in service to others. I can't wait. I'm eager to see what we will become together six months, a year from now, two years from now as more people simply start trusting Jesus and saying to him, Lord, I don't think it's much. I'm not even sure yet what it is, but I've heard you and believed you that I have been gifted to serve others. Here I am. Someday in heaven, mark my words, we'll celebrate it together someday in heaven, you will see what a difference your gifts in the hands of your Savior made, how many rewards you stored up for yourself in heaven, and what an eternal difference it will make if you will only discover your gifts given to you for the sake of others so that you can be, we can all grow to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, for those who are here who need you as Savior, I pray that you would move in their hearts right now I may not have been able to tell them fully, and I'm pretty sure I didn't do it very well, but I've tried to be the messenger to tell them that you are their only hope and you died to save them. I pray that those who are here who need you as Savior, to whom you are speaking, would turn from sin and turn to you right now and call out to you and say, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner but I'm sorry, I'm turning to you, please save me. And for the many others, Lord, the majority of Christians who are here, they are gifted. Many of them are already expressing that gift, and that's why we've been blessed. Together, a small multitude of people have given their gifts back to you and in service to each other, and that's why we're blessed and happy and joyful and loving here. But there are many others who are standing at that threshold between self-protection and humility. Give them the humility to take the card, identify themselves as those who are willing to discover their gift and to serve. And as we turn, Lord, to celebrate your, your supper, your communion in remembrance, Lord, of your death and resurrection, announcing your soon return. Give us grace. Give us humility. Give us gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.